This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Well, after a chaotic 24 hours, this bill passed the House in under a minute with a chorus of voice votes uh, supporting the $2 trillion historic rescue. It is Friday, March 27th, 2020. And the United States Congress has just passed the largest stimulus bill in its history. It keeps being reported as a quote-unquote $2 trillion stimulus bill, which sounds like a lot of money, but a fairly meaningless amount will go to taxpayers. The big winners here are corporations and big industry. Oil execs have got to be clicking their damn heels right now. We're going to explain why in this episode. In season three, we traced the creation of Big Oil's big propaganda machine, and now we have a perfect example of why they spent so much effort and money and years building it. Only an industry that has convinced both political leaders and the public that it is an essential part of the economy, national security, and really what it means to be American could get away with what Big Oil is doing right now. Welcome back to Drilled. I'm Amy Westervelt. There are three key things to know about what was happening with the oil and gas industry long before the coronavirus pandemic hit. First, shale gas companies, also known as fracking companies, had racked up tens of billions of dollars of debt. And those loans are all coming due soon, somewhere between 2020 and 2027. That's a huge problem for an industry that's never turned a profit. Never turned a profit. More on that in a minute. The second thing to know is that oil and gas companies of all kinds have been stacking up debt around what's called asset retirement obligations. When a company gets a permit to drill for oil or gas, they need to take on these obligations, basically agreeing to cap wells and clean up drill sites once they're done using them. But no one's enforcing this. It's really easy for companies to say, you know what, we're not sure we're done with that well. We might come back to it if the price of oil increases, so it's not technically retired. They've all been doing this with thousands of wells for years, so at this point they've stacked up billions of dollars worth of cleanup costs on their ledgers. And 
third, prices in the industry have been going down since about 2016. That's because demand has been decreasing. So despite all those things the oil industry tells us about how they're just fulfilling a demand, not so. The industry's entire business model is built around the idea of $100 a barrel oil. The price has been between $50 and $70 since about 2016. And then this recent price war hit, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Now it's all the way down at about $25. All of this stuff was causing real financial trouble for the industry before the coronavirus pandemic sent demand shooting downward. That decreased demand has exacerbated all of this, of course. But the idea that they need a bailout because of coronavirus is bullshit. fracking industry is cash negative right now. The, the fracking industry has not produced a return on capital in excess of the cost of capital since its inception. This is an industry that has never succeeded in producing free cash flow. Never. Okay, first let's talk about the absolute Ponzi scheme that is and always has been the fracking industry. These companies spend more cash than they actually produce. That is, they have negative free cash flow. That's Clark Williams Derry. He's an energy finance analyst with the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, who's spent 20 years researching energy finance. In an early stage business, like an internet startup, for example, spending more money than you make is pretty common. It's not that weird. But it usually doesn't last for more than 10 years. And that's what's happened in the fracking industry. This is an industry that has never succeeded in producing free cash flow. Never. Individual companies may produce it from time to time. There are a few companies that are sort of standouts. They produce modest free cash flows. But for the most part, the fracking sector is unable to produce cash. So on its surface, it makes no financial sense to bail out the fracking industry. Why prop up an industry that's never turned a profit and that creates an endless amount of costly environmental problems from pipeline leaks to climate change? Because it's not just about the economics. Economics aren't going to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Only politics can do that. This is Lucas Ross, a senior policy analyst with Friends of the Earth. It is very dangerous for climate activists to assume that just because the fossil fuel industry is financially hurting, it is in the process of dying. It badly misunderstands the political realities that have kept this industry afloat for the last century. If you want to better understand those realities, go back and listen to season three. But there's an important bit of recent politics to understand in the context of what's happening today, too. Greg Rogers, a legal and accounting expert who's been researching environmental liabilities in the fossil fuel sector for about 20 years, is going to walk us through that price war I mentioned earlier. You might have heard it mentioned in the news lately, the Russia-Saudi oil price war. Okay, so what I I think is behind the price war is that uh, the the U.S. is stealing market share uh, from the Saudis and the Russians uh, in the form of Pipe shale oil, or tight oil, as they call it. Okay, so tight oil is a type of crude oil that fracking companies realized they could also get from shale rock a few years back. 
They started out just drilling for natural gas, then they discovered this tight oil, and that's what really put them on track to compete with the big global oil producers, Russia and Saudi Arabia. This little tidbit is important to understanding why the government and various banks would continue to fund an industry that doesn't generate cash. Remember this from Trump's 2017 State of the Union address. We have unleashed a revolution in American energy. The United States is now the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world. He's made similar statements in every state of the union since. There are political reasons for continuing to produce oil and gas, even when there's a glut and the prices are low and the economics just don't work. Here's Greg Rogers again. The U.S. has gone from being a large importer of oil, from largely from Saudi Arabia, to being the number one producer of oil and gas in the world and actually exporting oil to, uh, to foreign markets. So we're a competitor. And there's a climate change wrinkle here, too. Basically, no one wants to be the guy left holding a bunch of valueless oil barrels when the music stops. I think they would say that if climate change and the energy transition means that oil is to be left in the ground, it's not going to be our oil that goes unburned. That's what, that's what the Russians and the Saudis would say. Mm-hmm. But if you accept that the world is eventually going to heal to the scientific warning that we can only put so much more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere without incurring the worst effects of climate change, then that means only so much oil is going to be pulled from the ground and burned. And the Saudis and the Russians have enough oil to supply the world's needs under that scenario just between themselves. Mm. So they have a lot of reserves. And they're also the very, they're the lowest cost suppliers in the world. So if you start to think that there's only so much more oil that's going to be burned, and logically the lowest cost suppliers should be the, the, the ones that provide the oil that the, that the world is, is going to consume, mm-hmm. it would be Russia and Saudi Arabia. So why would they want the Americans essentially taking, you know, their market share. Which brings us to the coronavirus and the price war. As soon as the virus started making headlines, Russia began pushing back on OPEC's production limits. OPEC brings the 13 oil-producing countries together to set production and pricing, which creates stability in the world oil market. On March 6th, Russia pulled out of OPEC's production agreement, prompting Saudi Arabia to set super low prices on its oil. Russia countered by upping its production even more. And between that and the pandemic driving demand down, oil prices took an epic fall. They're now under $25 a barrel, which isn't great for Saudi Arabia or Russia but their production costs are way, way lower than the U.S. For American oil and gas companies, these prices are catastrophic. So now all of a sudden, politicians can say, we're not bailing out a failing industry. We're saving American companies from attacks from the Russians and the Saudis. I would imagine that there would be a lot of uh, political pressure and uh, and, and uh, some inclination by U.S. politicians to support the domestic oil and gas industry, and especially when you tie that back into concerns about national security. So I, I, I think the proposition that that the Saudis and the uh, and the Russians are going to provide the, the oil energy needed by the world as we phase out this industry is 
is not very appealing to U.S. politicians. And so, again, reason to bail out the industry. The question is, can they afford it? I mean, the, the, the fracking industry has been, you know, it has, has not produced a return on capital in excess of the cost of capital since its inception. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not going to happen. <laughs> but one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earth Breeze. I know what you're thinking laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean. It smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes. So it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again, thanks to Earth Breeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus shipping is always free and Eco Sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 40 for zero. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E.com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, that brings us to this other big issue I mentioned up top, asset retirement obligations. So asset retirement obligations, or ARAs, are uh, an accountant's term 
for legal obligations associated with the retirement of a long-lived asset. So we're talking about tangible assets. In this case, we're talking about oil and gas wells, plug and abandonment costs, right, for the industry. None of that's being factored in. The industry wasn't cash flow positive before you accounted for that. It's probably been, you know, I could probably count the plugged horizontal fracking wells on my fingers and toes in the United States since, since the industry started. Unplugged wells can leak all sorts of chemicals and toxic fluids, including oil or natural gas itself, into the water, air, and soil. They're also a major source of fugitive methane emissions, which contribute to climate change. The industry has been shirking its duties on this front for years, creating a massive financial and environmental disaster waiting to happen. Specifically for oil and gas wells, every state in the federal government requires that in order to get a permit to drill an oil and gas well, that the operator uh, has to commit to, uh, to properly decommissioning that, uh, that well at the end of its useful life, so at the point where the well is no longer economic to operate. If companies did this pretty soon after they stopped using a well, it wouldn't be that costly. Um, sort of back-of-the-envelope estimate of the cost to decommission and these assets uh, would be roughly 5 to 6% of the cost to create them. But they don't do it right away. They put it off, sometimes for decades. The problem is, and why the numbers get so big, is because uh, oil companies, to, to the uh, greatest extent they can, uh, want to defer those costs. In other words, they build up bigger and bigger inventories of these asset retirement obligations rather than properly plugging and abandoning wells, as soon as they become non-economic, they, uh, they let those wells sit idle, sometimes for decades. Mm-hmm. So we have very large inventories of, of debts that have piled up. Where is the money going to come from to clean up after the oil and gas party is over? I mean, there's, a, there's already large segments of the oil and gas industry that are functionally insolvent. Clark Williams Dairy again. He's also concerned about the asset retirement problem. You know, how is that industry ever going to produce enough money to pay for this massive amount of cleanup that has to happen all across the oil patch? All of those wells have to get cleaned up, the pipelines that feed them, the, the, the underground storage tanks, the above-ground storage tanks, any facilities that are related to oil and gas. Eventually, somebody somebody's got to pay for cleaning, cleaning that stuff up. And, you know, the oil and gas industry... You know, if it were a robust and profitable industry, you could say maybe they had the money to clean it up. Maybe they'll, they'll take care of it someday. But what we're seeing now is an industry that is financially collapsing that is unable to produce enough cash to just to pay down its basic debts, let alone to pay for cleanup. If they can't pay for it, states will be left with that bill. And many of them won't be able to afford cleanup either, which means the public could be dealing with this mess for years. I think it's high time for the state regulators to realize that they have a looming financial crisis on their hands because they're the ones who are going to have to pay for cleanup. A really good example of this is the California Resources Corporation, which happens to own most of the oil wells in the county I grew up in, Ventura County, the fastest warming county in the lower 48. California Resources Corporation was spun off from Occidental Petroleum back in 2014. And according to some recent research from the ARO Working Group, it looks very much like Occidental spun a whole bunch of asset retirement obligations into a new company so it doesn't have to account for them. 
Now, California Resources Corporation is staring down the barrel of bankruptcy, which would leave California with billions of dollars in cleanup costs. The stimulus announced today doesn't earmark anything specifically for the oil and gas industry, but it kind of doesn't have to. The Trump administration has been a big friend to big oil all along. And one of the first things Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin talked about publicly with respect to the pandemic and financial aid was supporting the fossil fuel industry. Here he is on Fox Business in early March. Now, as it relates to the oil markets, I mean, let me let me yeah. just say this could not have occurred at a worse time. That this has nothing to do with the coronavirus whatsoever. So right. uh, there's there's no question that there's both supply problem as well as the demand problem. Um, you know, uh, I'm going to tell the president that my recommendation is that he goes to Congress and asks for a lot more money to fill the strategic reserve at uh, at twenty two dollars for WTI crude. We should be filling up the reserve for the next 10 years. So, you know, we are energy independent. Uh, Obviously, at these prices, we're going to have issues uh, producing energy. So so let's go out and buy 10 or 20 billion dollars of oil. The American Petroleum Institute made it very clear to me that they have not asked for any money. Instead, they sent President Trump a letter with their deregulatory wish list. First on the list was a request to have oil and gas sites designated as critical infrastructure. Here's Lucas Ross with Friends of the Earth again. As part of this stimulus bill, there is a $500 billion slush fund. But within that slush fund, you actually have four separate buckets. $25 billion in lending support for commercial airlines. $4 billion in lending support for aviation cargo carriers. And then you've got $17 billion for industries deemed essential to national security. Now, if you know what that means, you're smarter than I am. (laughs) It is totally unclear what an industry essential for national security is. There is a broad understanding that this is likely a carve-out for Boeing and the aerospace sector. But given how often and how stubbornly the oil and gas industry has insisted it is essential to national security, it would not shock me at all if they tried to get a hold of some of that $17 They'll also have access to the larger pot of money, of course. When you're looking at a $454 billion slush fund, the largest single pot of money associated with the stimulus bill, that big oil is going to have clear access to. A lot of these companies were hurting well before the coronavirus started, and a fresh injection of subsidized credit from Trump's pal Steve Mnuchin is probably looking really enticing right now. Most importantly, Secretary Mnuchin will have full discretion over what to do with these funds. The few guardrails that are in place can be waived whenever he wants. The discretion that Steve Mnuchin has in implementing the stimulus is unprecedented. There are two main conditions associated with companies receiving aid as part of this slush fund. The first one is a ban on stock buybacks until a year after the loan is satisfied. Mm -hmm. The second one is a requirement to maintain a current workforce, or at least 90% of it, until one year after the loan is satisfied. Mm -hmm. So in theory, there are controls in place that that would keep a company from 
taking a loan out from the federal government and then just firing their entire workforce right. or taking the money and just plowing it right back into stock buybacks to uh, boost the price of their shares. At the same time, one of the most frightening things about this stimulus bill is the broad authority it gives to Secretary Mnuchin to waive those provisions. He is free to do so if he determines it is in the interest of the federal government to do so. The only requirement associated with his using that waiver authority is that he has to appear before Congress to explain himself. So conceivably, we could be in a situation where Exxon gets a $50 billion loan and all Steve Mnuchin gets is a bad news cycle. So to recap, the federal government has prioritized helping industry over helping the public. It's given a longtime oil industry ally carte blanche in doling out funds and waiving conditions whenever he feels like it. And the industry has access to close to $500 billion, even though it is financially unstable, will be facing an ongoing price war, and is offloading all of its environmental impacts onto taxpayers. Ah, the free market at work. it for this time. I was going to take a break after season three, but right now I think it's really critical to keep reporting on climate accountability. So expect a lot of regular updates in your feed. If you'd like to support this reporting, please go to our Patreon page. It's linked in the show notes and it's patreon.com slash drilled. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. The show is reported, written, and produced by me, Amy Westervelt. Our editorial advisor is Reka Murthy. Music in this episode is from Martin Wissenberg. Special thanks to the ARO Working Group and Theron Horton for research provided for this episode. We'll link to all sorts of resources in the show notes if you want to follow up on this a bit more. You can find Drilled wherever you get your podcasts, and please remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps us find new listeners. We're also reporting on this issue on our website, drillednews.com, so go there for more. And you can follow us on Twitter at WeAreDrilled. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. 